Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is the show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with some fine public domain short stories for kids and adults. Stories you know you've read before, but have probably haven't heard in a good long while. Links to tonight's stories can be found in the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight we continue our story, The Spectacles by Edgar Allan Poe. This morrow at last came, that is to say, a day finally dawned upon a long and weary night of impatience, and then the hours until one were snail-paced, dreary and innumerable. But even Stambul, it is said, shall have an end, and there came an end to this long delay. A clock struck, and as the last echo ceased, I stepped into bees and inquired for Talbot. Out, said the footman. Talbot's own. Out, I replied, staggering back half a dozen paces. Let me tell you, my fine fellow, that this thing is thoroughly impossible and impracticable. Mr. Talbot is not out. What do you mean? Nothing, sir, only Mr. Talbot is not in, that's all. He rode over to S immediately after breakfast and left word that he would not be in town again for a week. I stood petrified with horror and rage. I endeavored to reply, but my tongue refused its office. At length I turned on my heel, livid with wrath, and inwardly consigning the whole tribe of the Talbots to the innermost regions of Erebus. It was evident that my considerate friend, Il Fanatico, had quite forgotten his appointment with myself, had forgotten it as soon as it was made. At no time was he a very scrupulous man of his word. There was no help for it. So smothering my vexation as well as I could, I strolled mostly moodily up the street, propounding futile inquiries about Madame Lalande to every male acquaintance I met. By report she was known, I found, to all, to many by sight. But she had been in town only a few weeks, and there were very few, therefore, who claimed her personal acquaintance. These few, being still comparatively strangers, could not or would not take the liberty of introducing me through the formality of a morning call. While I stood thus in despair, conversing with a trio of friends upon the all-absorbing subject of my heart, it so happened It so happened that the subject itself passed by. As I live, there she is, cried one. Surprisingly beautiful, exclaimed a second. An angel upon earth, ejaculated a third. I looked, and in an open carriage which approached us, passing slowly down the street, sat the enchanting vision of the opera, 
accompanied by the younger lady who had occupied a portion of her box. Her companion also wears remarkably well, said the one of my trio who had spoken first. Astonishingly, said the second, still quite a brilliant air, but art will do wonders. Upon my word, she looks better than she did at Paris five years ago. A beautiful woman still, don't you think so, Frasson? Simpson, I mean. Still, said I, and why shouldn't she be? But compared with a friend, she is as a rush, light to the evening star, a glowworm to Ventaris. <laughs> why, Simpson, you have an astonishing tact at making discoveries. Original ones, I mean. And here we separated while one of the trio began humming a gay vaudeville, of which I caught only the lines. Ninon, 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 the boss. A boss, Ninon, de l'Enclos. During this little scene, however, one thing had served greatly to console me, although it led, although it fed the passion by which I was consumed. As the carriage of Madame Lalande rolled by our group, I had observed that she recognized me, and more than this, she had blessed me by the most seraphic of all imaginable smiles, with no equivocal mark of the recognition. As for an introduction, I was obliged to abandon all hope of it until such time as Talbot should think proper to return from the country. In the meantime, I perseveringly frequented every reputable place of public amusement, and at length at the theater, where I first saw her, I had the supreme bliss of meeting her, and of exchanging glances with her once again. This did not occur, however, until the lapse of a fortnight. Every day in the interim I had inquired for Talbot at his hotel, and every day had been thrown into a spasm of wrath by the everlasting, not come home yet, of his footman. Upon the evening in question, I was in a condition little short of madness. Madame Lalande, I had been told, was a Parisian, had lately arrived from Paris. Might she not suddenly return, return before Talbot came back? And might she not be thus lost to me forever? The thought was too terrible to bear. Since my future happiness was at issue, I resolved to act with a manly decision. In a word, upon the breaking up of the play, I traced the lady to her residence, noted the address, and the next morning sent her a full and elaborate letter in which I poured out my whole heart. I spoke both, freely. In a word, I spoke with passion. I concealed nothing, nothing even of my weakness. I alluded to the romantic circumstances of our first meeting, even to the glances which had passed between us. I went so far as to say that I felt assured of her love. While I offered this assurance in my own intensity of devotion, as two excuses for my otherwise unpardonable conduct, as a third, I spoke of my fear that she might quit the city before I could have the opportunity of a formal introduction. I concluded the most wildly enthusiastic epistle ever penned, with a frank declaration of my worldly circumstances, of my affluence, and with an offer of my heart and of my hand. 
In an agony of expectation, I awaited the reply. After what seemed like the lapse of a century, it came. Yes, actually came. Romantic as this small may appear, I've really received a letter from Madame Lalande. The beautiful, the wealthy, the idolized Madame Lalande. Her eyes, her magnificent eyes, had not belied her noble heart. Like a true French woman as she was, she had obeyed the frank dictates of her reason, the generous impulses of her nature, despising the conventional pruderies of the world. She had not scorned my proposals. She had not sheltered herself in silence. She had not, re she had not returned my letter unopened. She had even sent me, in reply, one penned by her own exquisite fingers. It ran thus. Mursil Simpson will pardon me for not composed the beautiful long of his country so well as mine. It is only delayed that I am arrived and not yet have due opportunity to l'étudier. With this apology for the manier, I will now say that, alas, Monsieur Simpson, I've guessed but the too true. Need I say the more? Alas, I am not ready. Speak de too much. Eugene Alland. This noble-spirited note I kissed a million times and committed no doubt on its account a thousand other extravagances that have now escaped my memory. Still Talbot would not return. Alas, could he have formed even the vaguest idea of the suffering his absence had occasioned his friend? Would not his sympathizing nature have flown immediately to my relief? Still, however, he came not. I wrote, he replied, he was detained by urgent business, but would shortly return. He begged me not to be impatient, to moderate my transports, to read soothing books, to drink nothing stronger than hawk, and to bring the consolations of philosophy, and to bring the and to bring the consolations of philosophy to my aid. The fool, if he could not come himself. Why, in the name of everything rational, could he not have enclosed me a letter of presentation? I wrote him again, entreating him to forward one forthwith. My letter was returned by that footman with the following endorsement in pencil. The scoundrel had joined his master in the country. Left S yesterday for parts unknown, did not say where or when be back. So, thought best to return letter, knowing your handwriting, and as how you is always more or less, are in a hurry. Your sincerely, Stubbs. After this, it is needless to say that I devoted to the infernal deities both master and valet. But there was little use in anger and no consolation at all in complaint. But I had a resource left in my constitutional audacity. 
Hitherto it had served me well, and I now resolved to make it avail me into the end. Besides, after the correspondence which had passed between us, what act of mere informality could I commit within bounds that ought to be regarded as in some in uh, wait a minute that ought to be regarded as indecorous by Madame Lalande? Since the affair of the letter, I had been in the habit of watching her house, and thus discovered that about twilight it was her custom to promenade, attended only by a person in livery in a public square overlooked by her windows. Here, amid the luxuriant and shadowing groves, in the gray gloom of a sweet midsummer evening, I observed my opportunity and accosted her. The better to deceive the servant in attendance, I did this with the assured air of an old and familiar acquaintance. With a presence of mind truly Parisian, she took the cue at once, and to greet me, held out the most bewitchingly little of hands. The valet at once fell into the rear, and with now, and now, with hearts full to overflowing, we discoursed long and unreservedly of our love. As Madame Lalande spoke English even less fluently than she wrote it, our conversation was necessarily in French. In this sweet tongue so adapted to passion, I gave loose to the impetuous enthusiasm of my nature, and with all the eloquence I could command, besought her to consent to an immediate marriage. At this impatience, she smiled. She urged the old story of decorum, that bugbear which deters so many from bliss until the opportunity for bliss is forever gone by. I had most impudently made it known among my friends, she observed, that I desired her acquaintance, thus that I did not possess it. Thus again, there was no possibility of concealing the date of our first knowledge of each other. And then she adverted the blush to the extreme recency of this date. To wed immediately would be improper would be indecorous, would be outre. All this she said with a charming air of naivete, which enraptured while it grieved and convinced me. She went even so far as to accuse me, laughingly, of rashness, of imprudence. She bade me remember that I really even know not who she was, what were her prospects, her connections, her standing in society. She begged me, but with a sigh, to reconsider my proposal, and termed my love an infatuation, a will-o'-the-wisp, a fantasy, or fancy of the moment, a baseless and unstable creation, rather of the imagination than of the heart. These things she uttered as the shadows of the sweet twilight gathered darkly and more darkly around us, and then... While the gentle pressure of her fairy-like hand overthrew, in a single sweet instant, all the argumentative fabric she had reared. Ply it as best I could, as only a true lover can. I spoke at length and perseveringly of my devotion, of my passion, 
of her exceeding beauty and of my own enthusiastic admiration. In conclusion, I dwelt with a convincing energy upon the perils that encompassed the course of love, that course of true love that never did run smooth and thus deduced the manifest danger of rendering that course unnecessarily long. This latter argument seemed finally to soften the rigor of her determination. She relented, but there was yet an obstacle, she said, which she felt assured I had not properly considered. This was a delicate point for a woman to urge, especially so in mentioning it. She saw that she must make a sacrifice of her feelings. Still for me, every sacrifice should be made. She alluded to the topic of age. Was I aware? Was I fully aware of the discrepancy between us? That the age of the husband should surpass by a few years? Even by fifteen or twenty, the age of the wife was regarded by the world as admirable, and indeed is even proper. But she had always entertained the belief that the years of the wife should never exceed in number those of the husband. A discrepancy of this unnatural kind gave rise too frequently, alas, to a life of unhappiness. Now she was aware that my own age did not exceed two and twenty. I, on the contrary, perhaps, was not aware that the years of my Eugenie extended very considerably beyond that sum. About all this, there was a nobility of soul, a dignity of candor, which delighted and enchanted me, which eternally riveted my chains. I could scarcely restrain the extensive... I could scarcely restrain the excessive transport which possessed me. My sweetest Eugenie, I cried, what is all this about which you are discoursing? Your years surpass in some measure my own, but what then? The customs of the world are so many conventional follies. To those who love us ourselves, in what respect differs a year from an hour? I am twenty-two, you say, granted, indeed, you may as well call me at once twenty-three. Now you yourself, my dearest Eugenie, can have numbered no more than, can have numbered no more than, no more than, 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 here I paused for an instant in the expectation that Madame Lalande would interrupt me by supplying her true age. But a French woman is seldom direct, and has always, by way of answer to an embarrassing query, some little practical reply of her own. In the present instance, Eugenie, who for a few moments past had seemed to be searching for something in her bosom, at length let fall upon the grass a miniature, which I immediately picked up and presented to her. Keep it, she said, with one of her most ravishing smiles. Keep it for my sake, for the sake of her whom it too flatteringly represents. Besides, upon the back of the trinket, you may discover, perhaps, the very information you seem to desire. It is now, to be sure, growing rather dark, but you can examine it at your leisure in the morning. In the meantime, you shall be my escort home tonight. My friends are about holding a little musical levee. I can promise you, too, some good singing. 
We French are not nearly as punctilious as you Americans, and I shall have no difficulty in smuggling you in, in the character of an old acquaintance. With this, she took my arm, and I attended her home. The mansion was quite a fine one, and, I believe, furnished in good taste. Of this latter point, however, I am scarcely qualified to judge, for it was just dark as we arrived, and in American mansions of the better sort, lights seldom, during the heat of summer, make their appearance at this, the most pleasant period of the day. In about an hour after my arrival, to be sure, a single shaded solar lamp was lit in the principal drawing room, and this apartment I could thus see was arranged with unusual good taste and even splendor. But two other rooms of the suite, and in which the company chiefly assembled, remained, during the whole evening, in a very agreeable shadow. This is a well-conceived custom giving the party at least a choice of light or shade, and one which our friends over the water could not do better than immediately adopt. The evening thus spent was unquestionably the most delicious of my life. Madame Lalande had not overrated the musical abilities of her friends, and the singing I here heard I had never heard excelled in any private circle out of Vienna. The instrumental performers were many and of superior talents. The vocalists were chiefly ladies, and no individual sang less than well. At length, upon a peremptory call for Madame Lalande, she rose at once, without affectation or demure, from the chaise lounge upon which she had sat by my side, and accompanied by one of two gentlemen and a female friend of the opera, repaired to the piano in the main drawing-room. I would have escorted her myself, but felt that, under the circumstances of my introduction to the house, I had better remained unobserved where I was. I was thus deprived of the pleasure of seeing, although not of hearing, or seeing the impression she placed upon the company seemed electrical, but the effect upon myself was something even more. I know not how adequately to describe it. It arose in part, no doubt, from the sentiment of love with which I was imbued, but chiefly from my conviction of the extreme sensibility of the singer. It is beyond the reach of art to endow either air or recitative with a more impassioned expression than was hers. Her utterance of the romance in Otello, the tone with which she gave the words Sol mio sasso in the Capaletti is ringing in my memory yet. Her lower tones were absolutely miraculous. Her voice embraced three complete octaves extending from the contralto D to the D of soprano. And though sufficiently powerful to have filled the San Carlos, executed, with the minutest precision, every difficulty of vocal composition ascending and descending scales, cadences, or fiorfiture. In the final of the Samamula, she brought about a most remarkable effect with the words, Ah, non guinge or mon parecero. Al contento und io son piena. Here, in imitation of Malibran, 
She modified the original phrase of Bellini so as to let her voice descend to the tenor G, when by a rapid transition she struck the G above the treble stave, springing over an internal of two octaves. Upon rising from the piano after these miracles of vocal execution, she resumed her seat by my side. When I expressed to her in terms of the deepest enthusiasm, my delight at her performance. Of my surprise I said nothing, and yet I was most unfeignedly surprised for a certain or rather a certain tremulous indecision of voice in ordinary conversation had prepared me to anticipate that, in singing, she would not acquit herself with any remarkable ability. Our conversation was now long, earnest, uninterrupted, and totally unreserved. She made me relate many of the earlier passages of my life and listened with breathless attention to every word of the narrative. I concealed nothing, felt that I had a right to conceal nothing from her confiding affection. Encouraged by her candor upon the delicate point of her age, I entered with perfect frankness not only a detail of my many minor vices, but made full confession of those moral and even of those physical infirmities, the disclosure of which in demanding so much higher a degree of courage is so much sure an evidence of love. I touched upon my college indiscretion, upon my extravagances, upon my carousals, upon my debts, upon my flirtations, I even went so far as to speak of a slightly hectic cough with which, at one time, I had been troubled, of a chronic rheumatism, of a twinge of hereditary gout, and in conclusion of the disagreeable and inconvenient, but hitherto carefully concealed, weaknesses of my eyes. That's all the story you get tonight. We'll see what happens on our next episode. Do you want more? Do you have a story you'd like me to read? Email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. New episodes release every Monday to Friday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Select episodes are available to view online at twitch.tv slash bigvoicej. Thanks so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>